This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. You can find it on page 807 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer. Eliezer was the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, and the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the, deport, and from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah. Hey, let's give him a round of applause. That, not easy. It's one of those ones where you sign up to be a reader and then you see what the text is and you're like, ooh. Uh, Don't underestimate the importance of a good opening. Some of the greatest stories ever written also have some of the greatest opening lines. And so let's play a little game here. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the line and you see, just shout out if you know the book from which it comes, all right? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities, right? The age of wisdom, the age of foolishness, and so on. Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens, very good. Uh, how about this one? It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Pride and prejudice, if you've nailed that one. All right, this one is more difficult. All right, listen up for this one. 
It was a bright and cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Where? 1984. Very good. Nobody in the first service got You weren't here in the first service, were you? All right. All right, this one's a layup. You'll get this one. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Romeo and Juliet. No, I'm just kidding. The hobbit. That's right. Here's another one you probably will get. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick. All right, a little bit more difficult. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Anna Karenina Tolstoy. And then my very personal favorite opening line, where's Papa going with that axe? Charlotte's Web. That's right, Charlotte's Web, which sets the stage for all that's to come. Uh, The New Testament has a famous opening as well, and we're going to be looking at that, the first two chapters of the New Testament and Matthew's Gospel during the season of Advent. And in these chapters, we, we get some very famous stories, right? Stories about Mary's pregnancy, Joseph's faithfulness, the danger of Herod, the flight to Egypt, the gift of the Magi. But the truth is, those stories don't come right at the beginning, do they? They come at the end of chapter one. They come at the beginning of chapter two. Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy. Literally, verse one begins the genesis of Jesus Christ. And then Matthew goes on to give us Jesus' family tree. Some have called this Matthew's begats because of the way it's translated in the old King James Version, right? So-and-so begat, so-and-so, and on and on and on. But when modern readers like us encounter this genealogy, our eyes start to glaze over. Maybe you just skip on ahead when you uh, turn to something like this. We really don't know what to do with a genealogy, but ancient people found genealogies fascinating, where you came from, who you came from. This was of enormous importance in the ancient world. And all of ancient writing is full of genealogies. The Old Testament is full of genealogies. We just finished studying together the book of Ruth, which ends with a genealogy. The New Testament begins with a genealogy. And so Matthew is very intentional with this opening. And we're going to be looking at all those great stories in chapters one and two during the season of Advent, the run up to Christmas, but I don't want you to skip the genealogy because embedded in this family tree are some clues to the meaning of Christmas. And so two things I want you to see this morning as we look at Jesus' family tree, two things we'll learn from this is that Christmas first is about history. And secondly, that Christmas is about grace. Christmas is about history, and Christmas is about grace. Both of these things we see in the genealogy. So let's take a look. All right, first, Christmas is about history. Now, just notice, the New Testament does not begin once upon a time, right? The New Testament does not begin long ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, it begins with a record. It begins with a genealogy. It begins with uh, rooting what Matthew has to say about Jesus in the well-known history of ancient Israel. This is Matthew's signal to all of us, to all the readers. What I'm writing about here really happened. It's about the real world. This is an historical account. It's about a boy who was born in a real place, in a real time. And I bring this up because people often seem to treat Christmas like a legend or a fable. A moral story, a myth. 
And I don't think this is always because of, you know, nefarious motives, but the truth is, you know, Christmas is really popular, right? Most people like it, and, and not just eggnog and mistletoe and, you know, uh, sleigh bells in the snow and chestnuts on an open fire, but they actually like the story itself. But many people think of this story, the Christmas story, even those who like it, as if it were a myth, a moral story, a fable. And what I mean here by myth or legend or fable, what I mean by that is a a great story that didn't actually happen, right? A great story that may inspire us. It may tell us something true about the world or what we wish is true about the world, but something that never actually happened. Think about some of the great stories like this that we have that stick with us. For example, Beauty and the Beast, right? Now, that's much older, by the way, than uh, Disney, right? Beauty and the Beast is, is a great story because what does it tell us? tells us that no matter how much our sins damage us, how, how much we, uh, our mistakes bind us and imprison us, that self-sacrificing love can break the chains and set us free and turn us from ugliness into true beauty. Lord of the Rings is another one, right? Uh, I've been reading those stories again uh, right now. But why do people, why do people like me still read Tolkien? And why did those Peter Jackson, uh, Peter Jackson movies just kill it at the box office? And why did you know, Amazon spend a billion dollars trying to make new ones, right? It's an epic quest. Tells us something that we long to be true, that no matter how overwhelming evil looks, no matter how bad the odds are, good will triumph in the end. Now, is Christmas just another one of these stories, these inspiring legends, these inspiring myths? In in some ways, it might appear so. Matthew tells the story of a world in jeopardy, but a hero comes on the scene the miraculous power, he can face down evil spirits, he can raise the dead, he liberates people from those things that crush and oppress them. And then the climax of the story, there's a betrayal and a disaster and the hero is dead, but he rises again from the dead and defeats the evil powers, he ascends to heaven. It's just like those other stories, right? Why shouldn't we treat this as a fable, as a myth, as a legend, as a moral story? And the short answer is, We shouldn't because Matthew won't let us. Matthew doesn't begin once upon a time. Rather, he begins with a record. He begins with a genealogy. He begins with history, a history his earliest readers were intimately familiar with. The patriarchs, the kings, the exile. This doesn't have the flavor of legend at all. Instead, it has all the marks of history and real life. And it's actually not just the genealogy here, the first pages of the New Testament, but the whole of the New Testament does not have the character or the flavor of legend. The New Testament gives us incredible detail about the life of Jesus. For example, the authors tell us the time of day that Jesus encounters people. It mentions how far Peter is out on the water when he sees Jesus on the beach or how they caught 153 fish when Jesus sent them fishing. It tells us how long they walked, how far this place is from another. The New Testament authors mention the names of specific people and invite their first century readers to go and to talk to them in case they have doubts about what is being claimed. Now, you might be thinking, all right, so what? You know, I read all kinds of fiction that has all kinds of minute detail in it. Ah, but that's modern fiction. That's realistic fiction. Ancient writers 
did not work that way. Ancient fiction didn't work that way. Realistic fiction, the novel, only began in the 18th century. All the old stories, all the Greek and Roman myths, they don't sound anything like what we have in the gospel accounts. Go read Beowulf. Go read Ulysses. You'll never read things in those stories like uh, they went looking for the Oracle of Delphi and she came out at exactly 3 o'clock p.m. and we were really hungry at the time, right? They don't have that kind of detail in them. C.S. Lewis, in response to this, the expert on ancient literature, Oxford, Cambridge professor, he wrote this. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know that they, what they are like, and I know none of them are like this. Of this, that is the Gospels, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, historical account, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. Kind of condescending there at the end, but... He's a professor, so I guess he can do that sort of thing. What is he saying? He's saying Matthew is not writing in the style of a moral legend. He's not writing in the way that you would write a fable. Matthew is writing something that he believes really happened. Now, that doesn't prove that Matthew's right about those things, but it does help you square what kind of claim Matthew and the rest of the New Testament are making. Matthew's writing about something that he actually believed happened in the real world, in history. And if you take that seriously, it changes your view of Christmas. It's not a moral tale. It's not a fable. It's not a legend. But it's a claim about something that actually happened in history. Now, before we move off this point, let me make just one application here. By grounding the Christmas story in history, Matthew is telling us that the gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Tim Keller explains the difference. Here's what he says. Advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what has already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize something that has already happened and respond to it. Advice says it's all up to you to act. News says someone else has acted. You see, if Jesus is a legend, if he's uh, the product of a moral tale, all you have is an inspiring example, a moral story to help you live a better life, to, to achieve something better in your life. But if Jesus was actually born into the world, if he really took on flesh and really walked among us, if he really died for our sins and rose again from the dead, then the gospel is not good advice. Here's what you need to do, but rather it's good news. It's tidings of comfort and joy about what has already been done for you. The call then is to believe it, to submit to it, to rejoice in it. Christmas is not once upon a time. Rather, it's veiled in flesh. The Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, it's the announcement of God breaking into the world. Christmas is first about history Secondly, Christmas is about grace. And genealogies, the way they functioned in the ancient world is, is much in the same way that we would talk about a resume today. 
Genealogies in the ancient world were a lot like resumes today. Now, when you think about your resume, right, we think about putting on our resume the things that we have accomplished, right? And so you list out uh, where you've worked, who you've worked with, maybe who you studied with. You write down the awards that you've won or the skills that you have acquired, and then you you know, can pad your resume a little bit too. You sort of buddy up to the things that make you look really good. Maybe you leave off some of those jobs that aren't all that impressive. For example, if I were, you know, updating my resume today, I would not include that I worked at Chuck E. Cheese, you know. Uh, Probably wouldn't make it on there, you know. I will say, though, I I didn't just work at Chuck E. Cheese. I was Chuck E. Cheese (laughs) for a whole summer. You can see if any of those skills translate. I'm not sure, but... But what do you do, right? You, you, you pad your resume, you play up the things that, are, that make you look good, and you downplay that job that you left under not-so-good circumstances because you're not sure, you, know, you don't want them to call up that boss, you know, that kind of thing, right? Well, in the ancient world, more than your personal accomplishments, more important was where you came from and who you came from. A genealogy was a resume. It told the world where you belonged in the pecking order, And people then, just as now, would pad their resumes too. They would leave off some embarrassments. They would play up the more respectable parts. Herod the Great, right, contemporary of Jesus, uh, famously doctored his family tree to try to edit out the blots and the blemishes. He got rid of all the scandals. He added in a few people who actually weren't a part of his line that he thought would bolster his resume. He excised an entire side of the family. He was part Edomite, those who came from Edom. He just sort of X'd that out of his resume. But what's so interesting is here as Matthew presents the family tree of Jesus, this is anything but a polished resume. It's selective, yes, right? He doesn't include everyone and everything, but who he includes is not what you would think would build the respect and the esteem of the eyes of the world. For example, five women are mentioned here in Jesus' family tree. Finally, I'm getting to the mothers of Jesus, which is the title of this sermon. Five women are included in the genealogy, and that probably doesn't seem like a big deal to you and to me, but women were very rarely mentioned in ancient genealogies because women didn't have much social status, and thus their names didn't do much to bolster the resume. But Matthew mentions them here. Tamar in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez, by Zerah, and Zerah, excuse me, by Tamar. Or in verse 5, Rahab, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Also in verse 5, Ruth, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Verse 6, Bathsheba, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba. And then you get down to verse 16, of course, and there's Mary, Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Christ. You might say, rather than patting the resume, Matthew makes sure to include front and center in his family tree, Gender outsiders. Secondly, I want you to know that three of these women are Gentiles. That is, non-Jews. Ruth was a Moabite. Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was a Jerichoite. And Bathsheba's first husband was Uriah, who was a Hittite. So three Gentile women, and the fourth was married to a Gentile. Her first husband was a Gentile. Now, if you have read the Harry Potter novels then you know that the Slytherins are all worried about being of pure blood, right? No muggles, no non-wizards in your family tree. Well, in the first century in Israel, it was similar, right? Gentile blood in your veins was nothing to brag about if you were a Jew. 
But here, Matthew prominently mentions the names of all these non-Jewish women in the family line of Jesus. Gender outsiders are included. Racial outsiders are in Jesus' family tree. And then thirdly, all of these women mentioned are at least suspected to be moral outsiders. Moral outsiders. The stories are more complicated And in many cases, the women are the victims, the women are the heroes of these stories in some ways. But at the very least, all these stories are somewhat sordid and all involve marital and sexual irregularity. This is not a neat and tidy thing to include them in these stories. This is not who you would choose to put up there as the pillars of virtue. This is not what a publicist would recommend you put out there on the front page. This is the stuff you tuck away in the back or excise out altogether or at least cover over. What are some of these stories? Well, Tamar pretends to be a prostitute and sleeps with her father-in-law. Now, in many ways, she's the victim of that story, but she still pretends to be a prostitute and sleeps with her father-in-law. Rahab actually was a prostitute with a heart of gold, but a prostitute nonetheless, right? Not the the most esteemed of, uh, of professions. Bathsheba is the victim of her story, but it doesn't change the end result that Solomon was born through an adulterous affair, something that you might want to cover, cover over. Matthew even, he didn't just mention this, right? He highlights this point by referring to Bathsheba as Uriah's wife, not as David's wife. Ruth is not on the same level of scandal, but she is a tad aggressive with Boaz. It's not what you would encourage your daughters to do on a first date, right? And then you get to marry. And the drama of the story in the next passage is that Joseph is quietly going to break off this engagement because Mary is pregnant. And he knows, Joseph does, that this is not his baby. Every one of these stories looks bad. It's plenty to feel, you know, all the magazines in the tabloid aisle. But it's not even just that it looks bad, but these are the kinds of things that would have made you unclean. According to the Old Testament law, you read Leviticus, you read Deuteronomy, and there are all kinds of reasons to keep these folks apart from the presence of God, apart from the temple of God, apart from the people of God, and yet here Jesus brings them right into the center of the action, right into his very family tree. Frederick Dale Bruner puts it like this, a New Testament scholar. He says, one gets the impression That Matthew poured over his Old Testament until he could locate the most questionable liaisons possible in order to insert them into his record. And so, finally, to preach the gospel, even in the genealogy. He goes on. He says, the four model matriarchs of Jewish history, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah... These are the ones you would think, if you're going to put women in, these are the ones to put in. The wives, respectively, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are conspicuous by their absence. Their husbands are here, and so Matthew could have included their wives, but Matthew gives us, as it were, four new matriarchs, and all of them preach the gospel of God's deep and wide mercy. Even in the genealogy, Matthew is teaching us Christmas is about grace. Look who's in this family. Prostitute, a victim of incest, racial outsiders, those who are excluded, the poor, and kings, all around the same table. Christmas is about grace, the shocking grace of God. Jesus is building a family of grace. The begats are dripping with it. 
couple of quick takeaways as we go from here, all right? Three just very quick things in response to this. And the first thing is the family tree of Jesus is telling us, reminding us, maybe saying to you for the very first time this morning, God is not ashamed of you. God is not ashamed of you. I hope you hear that loud and clear this morning. No matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter the baggage that you bring into this room this morning, God is not ashamed of you. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, it was as though God intended the reader of the genealogy at the first page of the New Testament to say, oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. And I know, right, in a room this size, it's not difficult to predict that there are some of you here in this room this morning who are struggling, even right now, with the notion that, right, could God possibly have me? Could God welcome me? Could God have me in his family? And it's my job, and it's a happy job to tell you this morning, yes. Yes, he could have you. Believe in him. Jesus Christ came into the world for who? For sinners. He's the hope of the nations. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it says, He is not ashamed to call them brethren, brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed. So Christmas reminds us, and God is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of you. But secondly, Christmas reminds us that there's no one that you should be looking down upon. There's nobody that you should be turning your nose down on. Not, not if you really believe in Christmas. Now take a moment just in your mind to think about who is it that you are tempted to look down on, right? We all have somebody, right? All, all cultures, all subcultures, all groups do this kind of thing, right? Encourage their members to look down on someone in order to congratulate themselves for their own Superiority. It could be a certain race. It could be a certain class of people, where you're from. Maybe, maybe you look down on the snobby elite, right? Those coastal elites who are so out of touch with real people in middle America. Maybe, maybe you look down on those who you think are ignorant, without education, no sensibility, no culture. Maybe you just despise those who have political views that are different than yours, that have all the wrong signs in their front yard, whatever it is. Listen, Christmas has to be the end of all that, at least for those of us who take it seriously, because here you have gathered into the same family, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, insider and outsider, moral and immoral, all equally sinful, all equally lost on their own merits. And in Jesus Christ all equally accepted, all equally loved, all because of the grace and mercy of Jesus. Martin Luther says it again. He says, now if the Lord does that here, so ought we to despise no one, but put ourselves right in the middle of the fight for sinners and help them. Isn't that great? So ought we to despise no one, but put ourselves right in the middle of the fight for sinners and help them. And last thing. God uses the weak things of the world. He uses the low things of the world. He uses the foolish things of the world. Uh, Anthony Lane, and yes, about 20 years ago, wrote a review 
of the Lord of the Rings, the books, as the movies were about to come. I, Brian told me I'm in a moratorium on Lord of the Rings stuff, but listen, I'm, I'm reading the books again right now, so you, like for the next month or so, you, you might hear some things about it, all right? Um, so Anthony, the movies were getting ready to come out. The Peter Jackson movies were about ready to come out. And so uh, on, the, on the eve of this, on the cusp of this, Anthony Lane wrote a review of the, of the books. And he's talking about, in the review, he's talking about uh, the point in the first book where the hobbits first meet Strider. They first meet Aragorn. And he's this sort of shady-looking guy in the corner of the pub. And he says, uh, Anthony Lane says that this episode captures one of the themes that pervades all of the Lord of the Rings. Maybe it's the hermeneutical key to all of the Lord of the Rings. He says, that, he says it this way. He says, you see that scruffy guy in the corner of the bar? He just might be the next king of the world. And he says, so you better be nice to everybody, <laughs> right? It might be one of the themes. Runs through the whole of the book, right? What's the climax of the book? This weak little hobbit. The one that you would think would have nothing to contribute is the one who saves the world of evil. Tolkien could write this kind of thing because he knew this is how God works. He knew the scriptures. He knew that God uses the weak things of the world, the lowly things of the world, the foolish things of the world. Look at Ruth. We just reflected on the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Who's Ruth? She had no office. She had no power. She had no position. She had no authority. She had no money. And 3,000 years later, we're talking about her. 600 of us have been thinking about Ruth for the last month. Think about that. Isn't that amazing? How many people alive today do you think that a group of people will be studying 3,000 years from now? Not many, I would wager. It's amazing, but this is the kind of thing God does. God works through the unexpected means, through unlikely heroes like folks that are in Jesus' family tree. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Christmas tells us that. Would you expect God to come on a throne in a place of power or through a manger? Christmas tells us he comes in mangers. And he comes through people like Ruth and Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and Mary. Blessed are those who have eyes to see that this is the way that God works in the world. Would you pray with me? And then the choirs can lead us in another song. But would you pray? Father, we do pray that we would be able to take in this message of Christmas. We might not mistake it to be a fable or a moral story, but rather that we might reckon with the claim that God really did step down into history, that he really did live for us, that he really did die for our sins, that Jesus really did rise from the dead and all to rescue us. And so would you help us, Lord, to grapple the meaning of that, the significance of that this Christmas, and, and then also to know that Christmas is about grace, the gospel is about grace, that sinners like us are invited into the family of God because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. So even this morning, as we sing, as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we pray together, would you help us to come and adore him, Christ the Lord, the Savior of sinners, the Prince of Peace. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.